All right, everybody, welcome to Acquisitions Anonymous. We're uh, here recording on a Friday, uh, another exciting day. I'm here, Michael Gridley, with uh, my co-hosts Mills and Bill. How's it going, guys? Hello, hello. Fantastic. We're peppy, as peppy as I've seen us on a Friday afternoon. And we have a special episode today. So uh, this is a podcast where we talk about small businesses for sale. And we have a wonderful Twitter celebrity and all-around good guy with us, Andrew Gazdecki of MicroAcquire. So Andrew, welcome. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you for pronouncing my last name correctly. I always do that when I go on a podcast and they ask me, how do I pronounce this before we start? I always say I won't tell you and see if you can get it right live. It's really good. It, I, I will tell you, it makes the host feel very secure in themselves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, we're, we're so glad you're here. I mean, I think, I think part of the reason I'm excited that you're here, besides you're a great guy, uh, is the genuine service that what you're doing with MicroAcquire uh, is providing the community of small business, you know, digital business owners who are, who are trying to move on from their businesses. So uh, it's been cool to watch you and the journey of the business since you since you started it over, well, I guess, less than a year ago. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. You want me to give you like the two minute sort of background? Yeah, tell us how you got to where you are today, how you came up with the idea and what the business is about. The short story before MicroQuire, I've, I've been an entrepreneur my whole career. I started a company in college called Business Apps. It was a do-yourself app builder. I call it the GeoCities of app builders because we built like way too many apps. We actually made more mobile apps than any other company in the world at one point. But not all of them are like high quality like GeoCities. Um, so that was a fun time. Uh, managed that company until about 2018 and then sold to ESW Capital. Uh, started a blockchain trading company after that. Sold that to uh, BNK to the future. That was mostly um, an asset IP sale. Then after that, you know, I, I just kind of thought MicroQuire should exist. I was looking to buy a SaaS company initially and looked at the typical spots that you would look if you're just starting out in the market and just felt there should be something, an alternative option for founders looking to sell without commissions and allowing buyers to connect directly with the founders instead of having someone in the middle. So yeah. Uh, and also funny note about MicroQuire, I literally have a journal entry that says, uh, before I launched it, it says like, I don't think this is going to work. It's a startup that's helping startups <laughs> meet startup buyers, but at least it looks really good. So if no one uses it, at least it looks good. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been fun to to see it grow so far, and um, yeah, just looking to help entrepreneurs um, to get acquired next to the business. Yeah, that's great. One, I, I think you just passed 400k in in ARR. Is that right? Yeah, we're getting there. Uh, we're at like 370, but by the time you publish this, probably 400. Yeah, I'll, I'll make I'll tag you in the tweet. When well, I uh, here's here's what will happen after this podcast. You're going to be at 500. So that's how it works. <laughs> yes. Um, well, great. So you brought uh, a couple of uh, listings of two digital businesses that are on MicroAcquire. So which one do we want to talk about first? That's up to you guys. Let's do the one that will be the politically correct challenge. That's the one I'm most excited about. Let's go for that one. Yeah, this is what the people are here to see is, is us to talk about the sexual wellness company. So let's do it. <laughs> do you want me to give the high level details of the business and then we'll go from there? Yeah. Tell us about it. 
All right. So this one, I wasn't really sure if I should list this one on MicroQuire. So for context for the audience, it's in the sexual wellness space. It's a profitable e-commerce business. It's doing 1.1 million in TTM revenue, 350,000 in TTM profit, uh, looking healthy each month, 80,000 revenue last month, 20,000 in profit last month. Uh, competitors listed, we vibe Dame. I'm not familiar with either, either of those companies, but asking price, $3 million, 150000 SBA loan, and 40000 forgivable PPP. And they sell some very interesting products. So they're doing, last 12 months, they've done a bit over a million in revenue. Is that right? 1.1 TTM. Okay. And then 350K of that was profit. So they operate about 33%. So that's, I guess, that's strict profit. That's great. Not EBITDA or anything. Yeah. Any idea what their existing channels are? From what they state, the biggest growth opportunity would be opening additional sales channels. So right now, it looks like it's just a pure e-commerce play. So they just sell on a Shopify website. I don't have specifics to share on how they're acquiring customers, but they are stating that they see opportunities to get into Walmart, Target, CVS, and wholesale. Okay. Uh, yeah, everybody yeah. sees Which those opportunities. <laughs> Let's see you try to do it. That's fun stuff. And they, and they also have trademarks, patents listed on key assets as well. So I guess they have some sexual wellness toys that they've patented. I don't know which ones, but those are the details. I, so this is, a, this is a sex toy business, <laughs> and they list their... Their first growth opportunities as getting sex toys into Walmart, Target, CVS. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if you guys have been to a Walmart, Target, or CVS lately. How extensive is their sex toy section? <laughs> it's like the first 12 aisles, isn't it? I, 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 <laughs> I, isn't it like Target that way? <laughs> you got to admire the entrepreneur, though. He's, 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 he's thinking big. He is. I, I admire him for asking 10x EBITDA for his business as well. Three million bucks on uh, 350 a profit. That is as they say. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing that I would immediately point out about this list, this listing. Usually I'm seeing e-commerce. I would value this. I mean, depending on how fast they're growing, like just taking a TCM, maybe three. Yeah, I would ballpark this. This is worth a million bucks. That's what yeah. I'm saying too. Yeah. And that's probably where it'll land too. So a lot of buyers might require will kind of negotiate with the founders to bring it to market value. And then a lot of founders will price high too, to kind of keep away people that might, you know, might not be serious. But yeah, I would value this at 1.0, just even to times three. Andrew, how much of a feedback loop do you get on closed transactions that are listed on microacquired? I mean, obviously people say, hey, take it down, but do you know necessarily what the composition of buyers is like, what they're paying, anything like that? That's a great question. So in terms of how I find out about deals, and this is something I'm working on addressing, but I find out through on Twitter, like, hey, I just sold my company on MicroQuire. And I'm like, okay, I'll take that listing down. Um, so I, I don't see the LOI. I don't see you know the purchase agreement. And I think that's important. I don't, I respect the privacy of both buyers and sellers, but you know, emails or just seeing them archive their account, but I'm building in the ability to submit an LOI so I could start really getting, you know, an idea of, you know, how these deals are being structured. In terms of the buyers, it's an interesting group. It's 
everyone from corp dev at companies like HubSpot, Hootsuite, Sendoso, uh, who are some other big ones? Dura Software. Microsoft. <laughs> no, Dura Software is what I said. That was a joke. <laughs> uh, yeah, we facilitated the uh, Slack um, Salesforce acquisition on MicroFire. That, that was our biggest deal. <laughs> no, just kidding. No, it's a really it's a diverse group. Most are financial buyers, so lots of PE groups, probably lots that you guys recognize. And then I think the more surprising aspect of the buyers would be probably second-time entrepreneurs. Maybe they've had some sort of liquidity event, they're looking to acquire a company. So not necessarily looking to do a roll-up or a portfolio play, but looking to, you know, acquire a company where they can apply their experience and not eat glass for two years trying to get something off the ground. Um, I would say that's probably the biggest group. If I had to just section it off, I'd say 20% are strategic, 60% are financial, and then 20% are the second time entrepreneurs looking to acquire just one business rather than multiple businesses. Yeah, that's helpful. I do think one of the interesting questions about a business like this, and it's unique in microacquire that it's, you know, it's a sexual wellness business. You know, how do you think about the types of buyers or limits to the types of buyers that would be out there for a business like this, just based on the characteristics of, of that being in something that's, you know, not straight down the fairway type, type business? Yeah. So with this one, I didn't know how to react when it came in. I was happy to see the founder doing so well with such an interesting business, but this one's a first in terms of the category. And I think the buyer for this business probably would need to have, like this would go well, I think with someone in the industry, someone that has some sort of relatable product or audience or something like that. But this one's definitely a unique one. So this one's almost like a test of, you know, the appetite for these very unique types of e-commerce businesses. So how does this compare size-wise, Andrew, to to things that you're seeing on the platform? Like, you know, let's just call it, you know, a little over a million in revenue and 350,000 in profitability. Is that is that kind of indicative of what's normal on the platform for for e-commerce? I see a wide range. There's definitely companies on the smaller end and there's definitely companies on the bigger end. I there was a company we were going to talk about but decided to focus on these two other ones. But some are, you know, 10 million in revenue, some are in five, three. Uh, 10 is probably like the highest threshold. But this is probably the best fit for microcar. Like one, two, three million in revenue, 500, 2 million in profit, something around there. That's a perfect fit within microcar. And those ones get a lot of interest from buyers. Yeah. Tell me how it works too. I mean, just because I'm sure there'll be folks listening who don't who aren't already subscribed, but if you're on, you can, you can look at any of this in publicly available information just by, by going to microacquire, but then there's this kind of private information toggle. H- how does that work? So if somebody's looking at this and they want more information, they need to be a subscriber or the seller needs to grant them access. Is that how it works? Yeah. So every time if you're a premium subscriber, what that does is that allows you to actually contact the seller. And the seller then has the option to approve or deny your request into their mini data room, which will have the company name. It'll have a buyer presentation created by my team. We ask about like 35 different questions and we put that into a nice 
overview doc and the seller's full control. So for free users, you can see all the listings, but to actually get information and communicate with the buyer, that's what uh, MicroQuire Premium is for. And gotcha. One thing I want to add on that too is I didn't expect that to be the business model of MicroQuire. It was not the idea at all. Shout out to, actually, I won't say his name, but he was uh, my first customer and he's uh, the founder of a company I, I've always admired since I was like 22. But I was hearing complaints from sellers because I would post a deal on MicroQuire and they would get legitimately like a hundred different requests from buyers. And some would be serious, some would be in the middle, and some are just, you know, tire kickers wasting time. And so I had this idea of what if you have to pay to see the listings? You can look at, you know, the listings, but if you actually want to, you know, using an analogy, you can look at the Ferrari, but if you want to sit in the car, get information on the engine, figure out who the owner is and actually have a conversation about buying the business. Yeah. You just pay a small monthly subscription, no commissions, simple as that. But it was really to improve the buyer and seller experiences. Sellers were just getting hounded. Yeah. I think that's such an interesting model too. Cause I mean, like we're, we're kind of talking about maybe more traditional kind of main street or lower middle market businesses, typically some, some e-commerce, some SaaS, but you know, most people who, who are kind of buyers in the lower middle market or, or main street, they go to bizbysell.com. They can get really excited about the listing and then they, you know, email a broker or they send information, you know, send a request to a broker and it may not go anywhere, right? The broker could be busy. He could be on vacation. He could just let it fall through his inbox. So I think it's an interesting way that you set it up because the, I think the way that it works now is fairly analog, right? Yeah. I mean, it's working surprisingly. We passed to the best of my knowledge, over 300 acquisitions, total deal volume, just based on what I can tell. There's a way for um, founders to hide their startup and I have no way of hiding it. And I can kind of see the level of interest and the level or the number of requests, but I'm pretty sure we're at about a hundred million in total closed deal volume. So pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, this is an interesting one. It's it's interesting to think about who the right buyer for this would be and that you and Bill both have a pretty congruent opinion on, on what the valuation might be. Yeah. I'll say, I mean, I totally agree with Andrew. This business is worth a million bucks, you know, plus or minus, but certainly not three. Um, the other thing I'll say that's interesting about this business that is a generalizable advice to people buying, I'll call kind of potentially vice-based e-commerce businesses, is that I don't know if you're going to be able to expand this business on Amazon. I don't know what Amazon's I don't sell sex toys, but I don't this seems like something Amazon might have a policy about. So you may not be able to expand on Amazon. Even if you are able to expand on Amazon, you may not be able to advertise on Amazon. You may also run into issues advertising on Facebook or Instagram because of their advertising policies. So regardless of what you personally might feel about sex toys, even if you're okay with it, some of these platforms are sometimes not. So if you're looking at buying an e-commerce business you know, that's at all you know, sex-related or tobacco-related, vape-related, CBD-related, uh, any, any of these things, you want to be really sure, A, that you're going to be able to grow the business in the ways that you expect to grow it. And then you're also taking on kind of the e-commerce version of regulatory risk that these platforms don't change their policies, which happens all the time. They suddenly decide CBD is not okay or sex toys are not okay. And boom, overnight, your business is toast. I knew a friend, uh, I have a friend and you guys, some of you guys may know, I won't mention his name, but he sells spy cameras. 
And overnight, Google changed like uh, hidden cameras, you know, like inside a teddy bear or a pen or something like that. And he, a huge part of his business was driven on Google ads and sponsored products. And overnight, Google changed their policy uh, that you couldn't do hidden cameras and his business got crushed. Um, so when you're kind of dabbling in this kind of, I don't want to call it gray because these things are very much legal, but these kind of vice-based businesses, you have platform risk that you just need to be aware of. And sometimes that will impact the valuation. That's great well. advice. I have seen the the social media account on this one too, and it's a uh, it's a little little risque. <laughs> Leave it that. It could be a good buy for you, Michael. I think uh, I think this one might be up for up your alley. Oh, I'm sure Mrs. Gridley would find it fascinating. <laughs> I, I do, yeah. Well, I'll, you know what I'll do? I'll talk about it tonight at dinner with my kids. It'll be great. So, <laughs> great. Well, let's. Let's move on to deal number two. And this one's more middle of the mainstream. So reflective of the uh, the adult-oriented is a, is a small, tiny percentage of micro-acquire. So. Yeah, that one was unique. Um, this one's a lot more common. We, uh, we generally, when I say we, I should say me. I focus predominantly on SaaS. So this next one is a B2B SaaS, Shopify, and big commerce app with 519 thousand in annual recurring revenue. They're stating 464% revenue growth in 2020. Competitors, Spocket, Oberlo, Modalist, and they're available on um, Shopify and BigCommerce. And this is a, a premium domain as well, I would say. And essentially what they do is they help e-commerce stores adapt, add additional products to their store that they can drop ship to customers. So basically this is like a this is like an Alibaba to Shopify bridge or essentially you, you plug this into the feeds of various dropship drop shippers and you let you list their product on your store, kind of snap your fingers, boom, you just added a thousand SKUs. Exactly. And you try to out, out SEO, optimize everybody. Yeah. My my questions with this business is they're not showing any profit. So I assume they're running at break even and they're kind of pushing it for growth. You know, this is one of those situations where, you know, it depends on what you're going to do with the business. Their asking price is 1.6 million with, let's just round it to 520,000 in annual recurring revenue founded in 2018. I don't know how I would value this business. I would need to dig into the P&L and see if there's opportunities to make this a profit or what what amount of the current revenue could be used to either reinvest in the business to grow it or how fast is this thing growing is this thing going to grow another 400% next year those are probably my my biggest questions on this one so are they is it a subscription model or they, do they do a subscription plus they get a cut on whatever's sold through their marketplace or is how, how does that work it looks to be pure saas so for as far as I can tell, it's, yeah, just basic monthly subscriptions. And they have tiered pricing based on the number of products that you add onto either your Shopify store or your big commerce store. It looks like that's how Spocket does theirs too. The one they list as the number one competitor for the middle of the road package there is $49 a month for 250 products and 25 premium products. And they throw in chat support for free. Nice guys. And chat. Can you guys comment on, I mean, this is a relatively new business, right? A Shopify app or a big commerce app. And to me, from the outside looking in, there are a million of them. 
and I don't necessarily know how to differentiate them, but can you kind of talk about maybe some of you that know more this relatively new phenomenon? So I want to clarify with this, it's not a Shopify app within... So this, it could be just connected to the Shopify API, yeah. but kind of either way, like your customers, your only your only customers can be someone who have a Shopify or a big commerce store. Exactly. What I think is interesting about this one though, is that they have big commerce. So they have at least at least diversified off of the Shopify ecosystem. Not to say that if I, you know, if I were to pick one ecosystem, the Shopify ecosystem is where I'd want to be. If I was building ECAP, uh, building apps for e-commerce sellers, uh, that's a big, big ecosystem. But I think I like that they've already already expanded beyond it. Well, this Spocket as a competitor has, uh, well, they claim nine integrations. But looking at that one, it's Shopify, Wix, WooCommerce, BigCommerce, Alibaba, theoretically, and Squarespace. Those are the ones I recognize as storefront type apps. I think this one, whoever acquires this one, I think the opportunity here is clearly to grow the business. Like, how could you achieve, you know, another 100, 200% of additional growth over the next year? Is that even possible? Um, so if I was looking at this business, I would first start by deep understanding how are you currently acquiring customers? Are there any clear areas that can be optimized? You know, simple things that I see a lot of founders missing on is just, you know, building out like a revenue model. Like how much traffic is coming and how much of that is converting into free trials, what's your free trial to pay conversion rate? You know, really understanding kind of like what growth levers you can pull on and then narrowing in on low hanging fruit. I mean, that's how I would, how would you guys value this business? I got to look at Michael for this one. I don't think I'd buy this business. <laughs> <laughs> but how, I didn't say buy it. I said, how would you value it? How would I value it? I mean, I think the one thing I would want to double click on before I value anything is this seems like the type of marketplace play that if I was Toby running Shopify, this is precisely an economies of scale thing that I would expect to build into my platform. Like I want, I want to have those network effects amongst all the stores and have people listing stuff on there to compete with Amazon and provide that breadth. So I'm actually, that's the thing I'm scared about is three years from now, this not being a real business. My counter to that though, is what if you bought this business with the goal of potentially you know, maybe you had it in at big commerce, you know, you know, one of the co-founders or something like that, you're able to grow the business. And this becomes a strategic acquisition after building it out a little bit more. I don't know if that's a crazy risk to take probably, but that's what I would personally do. If I was going to acquire this one, I would focus on growing the heck out of it. And then, cause I agree with you, Michael, I think this is a key feature to add into Shopify and a big commerce. And then getting on their radar and you know build like deepen the relationship and the partnership and trying to become like the premier drop shipping add-on and then maybe one day they come knocking and acquire the business for hopefully a larger amount than you than you paid for it. Yeah. Well, here's here's a data point for you. I'm on the Spocket website. That was the number one competitor they listened listed. They said they have sixty thousand customers on there, and it looks like their middle of the road plan is forty nine dollars a month. So that puts these other guys at theoretically uh, thirty million ARR plus or minus, depending upon what you think the what you think the numbers are. So I see little businesses like this often, where it's like in the Shopify ecosystem or a SaaS thing, where there's like they have point zero zero one, and there's a reason it's because their product is way behind, you know, and it's just not good comparatively. So that's the other point point I would dig into. You know, if I if Toby can afford to buy Spocket, 
are big commerce can afford to buy Spock at, you know, given their market cap at this point, why would they mess around with this thing? So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also got to say, this is a space I'm semi-familiar with. Overlow is huge as well. Uh, I mean, there, there are a number of really big players that have been around for a really long time in this kind of dropship enablement marketplace app thing. And you'd have a hard time overtaking them. I mean, these guys have raised money. Like they're installed. Like you can see this is sticky as hell. You know what? If all your products are coming through it, you know, it's hard to rip it out and put in a new one. And also I generally, unless I like, am like drink beers with Toby and knows he wants to buy this thing. And like, I'm sure that Shopify Corp Dev wants this. I really hate the thesis of I'm going to buy this because I think this business should, it's not a good standalone business. It should be part of Shopify. And so it's a binary outcome. Either it's a shit business or I sell to Shopify for a lottery ticket. If you want to gamble like that, go buy a lottery ticket or, you know, trade options in the stock market or, you know, whatever. Well, and it doesn't cash flow, right? So if it cash flowed, you could warehouse it and go, hey, worst case scenario, I pay a fair multiple. I earn my money back in three years. And then if the lottery ticket does hit, then great. But if not, then I've at least covered my, my outlay. Exactly. And that's totally fine. But what I hate about I just want to talk about the specific mindset of this thing doesn't make money. I don't actually want to own it, but I think maybe I could flip it to, you know, because I think I have the end to Shopify's corp dev. You know, it's very easy to trick yourself into thinking that, yeah, the guys at Shopify have not, they're certainly not talking to Oberlo and Sprocket every single quarter and trying to sign, you know, like the guys, the corp dev guys, like they've thought about this. You know, you're not the first person to think that this would be a good feature for Shopify. So like, I just, I see people plunk down a lot of money and get really disappointed because you know what happens when you call Shopify? They go, that's great. Yeah. Like maybe get a little bigger and like, let us know. And it's the same thing like a VC. They just totally wishy-washy you, but you've got several million dollars invested in this business. Uh, It's just, you should buy businesses you want to own. Well, I think, I think that creates a good question, right? Like what is a SaaS business that's worth owning? Well, there's a ton of them. And I, I, I agree with Bill's point. Obviously, strategic acquires are, you know, those acquisitions are much harder to get done and those relationships are going to take years to foster. So I, I agree with you there, Bill. Um, in terms of SaaS companies worth acquiring, I mean, I, I always tell people to go after things that they have domain knowledge in. So this would be great for someone maybe with a portfolio of, e-commerce companies. I'm just, I'm throwing out ideas. Um, not maybe you have a portfolio of Shopify apps and this is a way to cross sell across different companies, um, that you own. If you had an established Shopify ecosystem app and you had a bunch of established customers and you wanted to sell this to them, that sounds good too. Yeah. This isn't a bad business. I, I mean, there's a million reasons you know you learn more and especially, you know, again, I feel like the theme of this podcast is buyer business fit. Like if, if you're the right buyer for this, there's a zillion reasons to own this. I'm not trying to say that, that you wouldn't want to own this business. I'm just saying you shouldn't buy this business expecting to sell it to Shopify. That's all I'm saying. What if I had already bought a sexually oriented supply business off of MicroAcquire and I could merge it with this? <laughs> Synergy. Synergy, Bill. Dropship sex toys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then you could crank them out. You can add that to every store. Yeah, this one, I think my biggest question is, you know, how much how much revenue is available to reinvest into growth? And then where is the growth coming from? You know, because they're stating, you know, 464% revenue growth in 2020. 
which means they forex the business in one year. So I know the other competitors are bigger, but they're not, this isn't a flat business. So, you know, what is causing that growth? Is there ways to accelerate that growth? Is there thing, is there costs that can be reduced if you purchase this business to reallocate expenses towards growth to continue that growth? Those are my big questions. And then, yeah, what's Toby's email? So I can, you know, try to Try to plug that in. Yeah, <laughs> I got I got Eddie's email from Big Commerce, so I could hit him up. But, but I think you're ex- exactly right. Like you got to double click on this one to really understand the dynamics of the business to understand why it would be worth three times revenue. If it's growing four times a year, four hundred percent a year, and it's going to grow four hundred percent a year going forward, it's definitely worth three times ARR. Now, is it going to grow four times this year? I don't know. That's that's what you that's the bet. Yeah, I think it's hard. Also, I think it's important to note that the buyer universe, if you're the seller here, the buyer universe for this is very different than the buyer universe for the e-commerce business, uh, the sexual wellness one. In that, although I'm now I've got ahead of myself because I don't think the SBA would approve the sexual wellness one. But like you can't, the point is you can't buy this this forexing SaaS business with no profit with an SBA loan, right? Like you're you're probably coming like you got to have cash. You're going to pay full cash for this, and it's really a growth story. Where and that's a very different type of buyer than the person who wants to use an SBA loan, you know, pay three to four x for an e-commerce business that they expect to grow 25 percent a year and still do very well. So you, as the seller here, I think you got to understand who you're dealing with. It's probably a smaller buyer universe who has one and a half million dollars straight cash uh, they want to drop on this thing and then get involved. Yeah, this this is in what I refer to as kind of the dead zone for SaaS buyers, like the one to two million range. So the problem is above a million, it's really expensive. Like it's hard, your number of individuals who want to buy a business of that size uh, at that level of EV, like is relatively small, who can afford it as individuals. And the guys that are institutional buyers, unless they're doing a strategic, strategic purchase, the financial buyers don't want to buy something that small. Because at two, two and a half million is where you can start to run it like a real business. This is a great way to buy yourself a job and the institutional and financial buyers don't want to do that. So it's a dead zone where it's it's hard to transact. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think this one, this would be a good fit for someone with probably e-commerce experience looking to buy, you know, their first company and they see, you know, some sort of, they have some sort of unfair advantage in the market. That's who I could see purchasing this company. I agree with you, Michael. Well, super good. Andrew, you're fantastic. I do have a couple of questions. I, I think that a lot of our folks that listen to the podcast are potential acquire, you know, they're they're novice acquirers, right? They wanna they wanna buy a business either now or in the future. You know, is there any advice you can give to folks that would be potentially coming to microacquire or or are out in the market looking to buy a whether it's a software business or an e-commerce business? Think based on the things that you've seen people doing, what what things could you share with them to make their life better? Yeah, I would say the one thing I always say, and you guys might disagree with this, but I think relationships are really important. So if you're looking to buy a business, I always say schedule a call, get to know the founder, understand, you know. Get to know them personally and professionally. Understand why they're looking to sell, because when you buy a business like this, you're gonna there's gonna be things you know post transaction that you want to have a good relationship with the previous owner, where you can rely on them to you know answer questions. So I'd say that's number one. 
number two, following people like you on Twitter. Um, Microquire also has a, a community with 1,200 members where people share. How do I value this thing? How would you structure this deal? Um, I'm going through due diligence and I saw this. What should I do? This company's based in Canada, but I want to acquire from, you know, or I'm based in Canada, but I want to acquire American company. So there's a, a community of SaaS buyers that people can join if they're just starting out and they just want to learn. And you can post questions and you'll get 10 different responses. But I'd say, you know, follow, follow Michael, follow Bill, um, listen to this podcast. I think you guys are doing something great. Yeah. Super cool. Well, and Mills is smart too, despite the beard. He's trustworthy. <laughs> I don't know anything about this stuff. So this, I'm, I'm learning. Thanks for coming on, Andrew. Uh, super cool. Well, thanks for being with us today. Mills, Bill, Andrew, anything else? Otherwise, I think it's a great, great opportunity to wrap it up for this episode, which turned out really well. Nope. This is great. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, you guys. I really appreciate it. Cool. I will click stop and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.